This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was sponsored by the Weber State University History Department and Mandy Booty and Chantel Oliver. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. You and I, like many modern earthlings, have <laughs> traveled a lot. Yes, we've lived on different continents. I lived in China while you lived in England. So my question for you is, What is home? Oh, hmm. I have moved so much that I never felt like I really lived anywhere. Mm -hmm. When people ask where I was from, I I was that annoying person that was like, uh, every, I don't have that. Mm -hmm. Because once I had been out of where we grew up, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was from there. I didn't have an answer to that. But when we moved to Colorado, when we, we made a conscious choice, weirdly, if you choose where you live mm-hmm. <laughs> and just pick up and quit your job and move to the place you want to live, you like it better. Mm-hmm. And I definitely feel like we are from here. This is home. Oh, you have found home. I have a home. Wow. Home is Boulder. Wow. I think that's kind of the future for millennials. We mm. are going to as you say, choose where we're from and, you know, move to the place that feels like our people. Yeah. And for millennials, especially national identities blur. Yeah. And we are a mobile generation. Hmm. And I often hear people claiming this kind of, you know, global mobile behavior is... Hmm unprecedented in world history and I wonder is it? (laughs) For 95% of human history we were in the Paleolithic era. (laughs) Hunter gathering or is it hunting gathering? Hunter gather hunter gatherer. Hunter gatherers. How does this grammar work? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway constant movement following the seasons and the herds and all that Mm. And today, paleo lifestyle and paleo diet folks advocate Hmm. for a return to those good old days for the sake of our health. (laughs) And they say this is how we're naturally designed to live, moving freely, seeking the horizon. Hmm. And they see the shift from the paleolithic to the neolithic as a kind of tragic time. Hmm. The thing that signifies the Neolithic is that we invented farming. We settled down. We gave up our freedom to move. And, I mean, when I I was learning about this, 
I don't know, in college, I was always presented with the idea that this is awesome, that, you know, humans were super excited yeah. about this. Oh, my gosh, we don't have to starve anymore. We just get to settle in and grow our own food and have more babies and all. <laughs> but um, some archaeologists see it the opposite way. <laughs> and they envision, they even envision a showdown between the wanderers, the hunter-gatherers, and the farmers, like fighting for the future of humanity. Mm. And some even point to megalithic monuments like Karnak in France. And they say, this is the last gasp of the hunter-gatherers trying to create a barrier to keep farming at bay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and we'll never be able to prove that Karnak is this last gasp of the hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. trying to stop the tide of history. Um, and it is a pretty wild proposal. But how much can we know? Mm. Can we find enough evidence to tell us whether roving the land is an innate part of our true nature? Mm. We just don't have the human evidence to bring these people to life. Except, ooh, haha, in 1997, a farmer slash amateur archeologist, <gasps> Martin Green, excavated a site on his farm in Dorset, England, and what he found amazed the world. A Neolithic burial. Ooh. A grave containing four intact, perfectly preserved skeletons. This never happens. Wow. Burials from this time are so rare. And when we do find them, what's left is like a tooth <laughs> or like a piece of a bone. We never get such complete yeah. humans. The skeletons were those of three children mm. and one woman. The woman was about 30 years old and she's known as Cranbourne Woman after the Neolithic location where she was found on the Cranbourne Chase. To this day, those who worked on that project still cite it as one of the most important and incredible projects of their career. Wow. So, what can her 5,300-year-old bones <laughs> tell us about humanity at the dawn of a new era? <laughs> can Cranbourne woman tell us whether farming changed everything about how we lived? The answers are fantastic. Yay! <laughs> I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. On my last visit to England, I met eminent Professor Janet Montgomery. Um, my name is Professor Janet Montgomery. I'm an archaeological scientist at the University of Durham. In 1997... Janet Montgomery was a PhD student trying to pioneer a new lab method in the UK, but no one would give her material to test. I was trying to develop a new method that had never been used before in Britain, so I was looking for um, samples to, uh, to try out the technique on. And I really struggled uh, because every time I approached a museum, to ask if I could apply this technique to some of the... Um, people, the skeletons in their collection, they, they, they said no because um, it was an unproven technique and um, they told me to go away and come back when I could prove that, that it worked. So I was struggling at the time 
And, and then, then Martin Green discovered Cranbourne Woman. And Janet Montgomery was recruited for the project because everything about the grave was so unusual. They really wanted to find out everything they could. Mm. Even the BBC got involved with a program called Meet the Ancestors. I uh, was contacted by Julian Richards, who was an archaeologist working on a BBC television program called Meet the Ancestors. And he wanted to know if I would use this method on some of the individuals that they'd been working on in the program. Uh, and and because it was it was novel and it was new. And so he did me a, a huge favour, actually, because whereas I was struggling in with the museum sector, as soon as uh, the television programmes went out, I was then inundated with people contacting me, of course, saying, oh, you know, would you like to work on our collections? So this was a huge benefit to me. At first, they studied the bones from this grave using existing techniques and they produced some interesting clues for us about Cranbourne Woman's life. One, she was in her late 20s, or maybe 30. Two, she was slender and delicately built. Three, she was starting to show signs of osteoarthritis. Four, She had an iron deficiency, and so did the kids. Hmm. Five, on the bones of her lower body, she had squatting facets. So they know just a surprising visual detail. She spent a lot of time squatting. And six, she had a perfect set of teeth. Perfectly straight, no decay whatsoever. Wow. And that's all. That's all they could infer. Hmm. What Was there anything included with the burial? Were there stuff that mm. she was buried with that okay. tells us stuff? No, nothing yeah. at all. No grave goods. And they didn't even know why she was buried there. Hmm. The, was she important? Was she a human sacrifice? Right. We just don't know. Did they die of disease? Were they killed? How come all four of them at once? Are they her kids or is this just, yeah. They were able to determine roughly the age of the children from Mm. the bones. So what we have is a 10-year-old, a 9-year-old, and a 5-year-old. And they were kind of nestled together. Mm. Even to this day, really, I mean, it's, you know, 20 years ago now, more probably, that I actually did the initial work on this, but it still remains one of the most um, interesting and and um, uh, touching burials that I've worked on, really. That's all we know from the grave itself. But if we zoom out from the grave to its surroundings, we get some clues because there have been excavations going on all over that area for decades. Hmm. The location is the Dorset South Downs, and that is a special spot. Archaeological is a very important site. It's very close to Stonehenge, for example, and, and lots of other monumental archaeology. Maybe that region is so rich in Neolithic artifacts because the South Downs are hills made of chalk. Mm. It's a marine, what we call a marine carbonate rock. So essentially chalk was formed in the oceans um, you know, millions of years ago. And it's essentially just formed of shells of sea creatures. And because of that, it's alkaline. 
and bone, any bone that's buried in an alkaline rock tends to preserve very well. Cranbourne woman was buried in chalk, and that's why her bones exist mm. today. No, we, we don't know to this day whether people were choosing to go and bury people on this white rock because, you know, some sort of cultural special place or whether it's just that we have a lot of burials there because they survived. And, you know, in the adjacent sandstones and mudstones, siltstones, which are which are much more acidic and bone dissolves much quicker. Next to the grave is a shaft. It's so weird. It's about 20 feet deep. And it was dug in the Stone Age Mm. using, like, antler tools. Jeez. They didn't have metal. They didn't even have the wheel yet. Jeez. Without metal tools, with with antler picks and things, it must have been a, a, a... a horrendous job. So, I mean, they were obviously very serious and there was obviously a, a need, a reason to build this, you know, to dig this wow. hole, but it's, there wasn't much in it at all, actually. There was no human remains in it or anything. There was a few odd, I think, animal bones and some, some flints and stuff, but, but yeah. So, why? Wow. What is this about? And, and the grave is also surrounded by a henge. Why? Huh. Yeah, well, the so henges are big areas enclosed sometimes by by stone as in Stonehenge sometimes by uh, wood they appear to be some sort of gathering places i.e. for um, corralling animals or people meeting perhaps people coming from different parts of the um, of the countryside and, and meeting together maybe holding religious ceremonies we, we, d- we don't really know um, but but they, they certainly seem to be a, a major feature of, of, of the Neolithic world. But this burial pit in the middle, it could be, you know, one, one suggestion was that it was uh, like a foundation burial. We just don't know. One of the reasons that this burial is unusual is because they're actually whole articulated skeletons. Most of the burials we have in the Neolithic are not like that. They are in long barrows and they are commingled, uh, disarticulated bones. They are mixed up, jumbled up bones from a variety of different people. And the grave is located very near another mysterious Neolithic site known as the Dorset Cursus. Mm. It's this enigmatic six-mile stretch of earthworks. So, like, big, long mounds of earth. Mm. They go on for six miles. I mean, it must have taken a massive amount of manpower to build it. Wow. And in 1997, I mean, all of this was so puzzling. Hmm. Enter Janet Montgomery. (laughs) This new method she was attempting to pioneer in the UK, it was called isotope analysis. Hey! Yeah. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) It's fascinating. So isotope analysis is a way of extracting information from the skeleton, so from the individual themselves, rather than assuming origins based on their grave goods or their grave type. We can actually take 
small samples from the skeleton and measure the isotopes in them. So an isotope is essentially um, a different type of an elemental atom. So you may, for example, have strontium, which is one of the elements we use, and strontium has three isotopes. So essentially these are all strontium atoms, but they but they weigh differently. So that's all, that's the only difference. They just have a different weight because they have a different number of neutrons in the nucleus. So we have strontium-86, we have strontium-87 and strontium-88. And wherever you find strontium, you find those different types of isotopes, but they vary in a systematic manner. So every type of rock, every type of geology that is under your feet has a specific strontium isotope ratio. And that's because of the age of the rock and the type of the rock. So that creates a variation, a zonation of strontium isotopes in the geology. And because that strontium then comes out of the rocks, into the soils, into the plants, it got, it's eaten by animals and humans, and obviously humans eat the animals as well. And so the strontium transfers from the rock through the food chain into the humans. So if you're living in one place and growing all your crops in that place on that specific type of rock, i.e. chalk, for example, you will have strontium in your teeth and bones that can be directly related back to the chalk rock. If you then move somewhere else to, say, a region of granite or sandstone, and you measure the strontium isotope ratios in the tooth of a, a burial from those regions or from you, you would have a very different isotope ratio to the place you were buried. So this gives us, this is, allows us to, you know, it's, it's essentially like passports of people that they carry around with them, you know, in their teeth, essentially, wherever they move. And we can look at other isotope elements. So strontium gives you an indication of geology. Oxygen isotopes is another one that we use, and that's based on climate. So again, that has a geographic variation, and it's all dependent on temperature and rainfall patterns. So generally, if you live in a cold place in the north, you have very low oxygen isotope ratios. If you live in a warm place in the south, you have much higher oxygen isotope ratios. So we can track the climate that people we're living in again so it allows us a, a discriminant and and there are others we, we can use as well those are the two main ones that we use to look at residential mobility and migration wow wait it's like she invented it she pioneered it wow. in the uk she's the first person yeah like that's a i mean i know huge deal so when I started out in my PhD, I had no comparative data because nobody had ever done any in Britain. So I didn't know how strontium, for example, varied across the landscape and from different regions. Nobody, we didn't know. Um, nobody had ever measured it really in plants. So I had to do all that, put all that fundamental um, work in place really before I could interpret the data. So since then, we've the technique really has just boomed you know we have so much more information now wow it's fantastically sciencey wow. stuff i just i love that we can know yeah. stuff like that and her results were pretty shocking we looked at the lead in their teeth which gives an indication of the environment they're living in and of course they were living in a completely unpolluted environment. They had hardly any lead in their teeth at all, which you would expect in the Neolithic. So that was one thing. Um, and then we looked at uh, the strontium and the oxygen, and that gave us an indication of the geology they'd been living on when the tooth was forming and, and the climate. And that showed us that the, the adult female, so the Cranbourne woman, she 
uh, wasn't from the South Downs. She wasn't from the chalk. Her astrontium was consistent with rocks uh, of older and uh, silicate rocks. So with the oxygen together, the most likely combination is that she'd come from the, the northwest of the site uh, towards the Mendips and Bristol area. So she, she'd come from somewhere else. And then we looked at the three children that she was buried with. And because the interesting thing with, with children, of course, is that their teeth are still forming. So whilst we could tell where the woman was living as a child, um, her teeth stopped forming around the age of 23. So we, we can't go any further than that. But with the three children, we could tell that uh, they'd actually grown up in, in different places. The oldest one had grown up on, on the chalk. The next oldest one had grown up off the chalk in a place similar to where the lady had come from, and then the youngest one had had grown up on the chalk. So they'd they'd moved. We assume that they were a group and had moved together, which is an assumption. We don't know that for definite. There was a there was a, almost a cyclical movement away from the chalk and back to the chalk. So they weren't a sedentary group. So it's often thought in the Neolithic that's when farming happens and people settle down, live in farms, and raise animals. But this group had were clearly mobile, they were, they were moving around. So, so that was one of the, the key findings to come out of it really, that it, it wasn't a sedentary group, they hadn't lived on the chalk their whole lives, or, the, you know, or in, at least in the last 10 years. Whoa, it's like tree rings, but yeah, people. Yeah, people, <laughs> yeah. Our bodies encode our environment you know they say you are what you eat and it is wow so literally fundamentally true wow at that time the archaeological community rejected the idea that neolithic peoples traveled i know this sounds bonkers now but when i started doing my phd migration as an explanation for change in the archaeological record in 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 the past was was not a permitted uh, explanation. You you can't be a farmer unless you live in one place and and you're there to sort of defend your crops. You know you can't grow a you can't sow a field of crops and then disappear for six months. Yeah. So, you know you would have to be there. It used you know in the nineteenth century migration was the, the cause of every change we saw. It was always people moving in and then they in, in the sort of sixties and seventies eighties people moved away from that and said no 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 you know change just happens or or it's passed by word of mouth. People aren't moving and bringing the change with them. So it, I was again I was fighting against uh, the archaeological paradigm really about what caused change. So this did show that as the humans, at least, were moving around. And I think one of the things that's come out of the growing use of isotope analysis is how mobile people were in the past. It is just, you know, they weren't, they were much, much more mobile than we think they were. They didn't just stay in one place because they didn't have cars and trains to get around. You know, they were moving a lot. Yeah. It's quite funny, actually, because the whole idea now of what happened is going back to what archaeologists were proposing in the 19th century, which is quite um, ironic. <laughs> so, we know Cranbourne woman came from far away. Then she went away again. Then she came back and she was buried in a mysterious chalk grave with three children. <laughs> 
is there a reason she is coming to Cranbourne? Is this is the chalk religious religiously significant and yeah. she's yeah. making pilgrimages or that was the big question. What is this Cranbourne chase? What is mm. this Dorset Cursus? Mm. How unusual is it? I mean we know somebody came from far away to be here, but why? Mm. So in 1997, it was all just this giant question mark. No Mm. idea. But now we have more answers. (laughs) An archaeologist named Mike Allen set to work on the Dorset Cursus. And (laughs) here's the thing. Sometimes archaeology is sexy, like when you're uncovering (laughs) a pile of skeletons in a white chalk grave. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's the dream. (laughs) But more typically, the reality is it is years and years spent collecting and classifying thousands of soil samples. And little bits of broken pots. (laughs) Yes. And sometimes, you know, you're doing that for years and years, gathering (laughs) thousands of soil samples from all over the Dorset Cursus. Yeah. And Mike Allen did that because the soil contained... Hundreds of thousands of ancient snail shells. Hmm. And he had a hunch that snails would be the key to understanding that site. Wow. Because, it turns out, each type of snail prefers a specific environment. Hmm. And if you can map out where each type of snail resided in the Neolithic era, you can describe the ancient landscape. Hmm. So that's what heroic Mike Allen spent years of his life doing. (laughs) What persistence. And now we know. Wow. It turns out that the Dorset Cursus is a boundary. According to Mike Allen, on one side, there was thick, dark woodland. (laughs) And on the other side, open landscape, light and airy white chalk. Wow. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Generally, we used to say, and a lot of people still say, that in the Neolithic era, pretty much everything was covered with thick woods. Right. But now we know the place where Cranbourne Woman was buried was... There, in the bright, open, white chalk world. Wow. And there's more. (laughs) Twelve miles west of the Dorset Cursus is another Neolithic settlement called Hambledon Hill. And 
English Heritage has been working there for years to uncover the story of the people who lived there. And they have discovered a fascinating piece of the puzzle. The people at Hambledon Hill built huge defenses to protect themselves from the people at Cranbourne. Mm. So there was some kind of perceived imminent threat. <laughs> and they spent huge amounts of energy and resources to build a rampart to protect themselves from Cranbourne. Mm. And it's very possible that Cranbourne woman saw it being built. Wow. So what do we have here? We've got a woman and children who played some role, maybe important, maybe not, maybe human sacrifice, who mm. knows, in this vivid Neolithic scene. Is there any DNA left that we can find out anything? Are they related? Are these her children? Are they boys? Are they girls? Are they... Yeah, good question. They did a DNA analysis in 1997 for the Meet the Ancestors BBC program. Mm. But nowadays, the technology is so improved that right. those results should probably be revisited. Yeah. So, and, and the issue is that DNA is expensive. Yeah. You, you can't just go mapping the DNA of every bone that you find. Can't they just get a 23andMe swab and... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> swab their saliva. Are these all women sacrificed? Are these... Yeah, exactly. That's the key. Because if it's all females, that's something. Right. So so adults, if you have the whole skeleton, are, are relatively easy to uh, sex. And you can do it with about 95% uh, success. <laughs> Infants and children who haven't gone through uh, puberty are very difficult to, if not impossible, to sex just by using looking at the skeleton. And um, the only way really you can do it is by uh, DNA analysis, which in archaeological remains can be problematic. Uh, it doesn't survive always, and uh, it's expensive and it's time-consuming. So, so at the time, we didn't know the sex with, with any certainty. Okay, and here is where Professor Montgomery just casually said, oh, but we've developed this new method. But this is a, something new that we've just developed. I could not believe she was telling me this. She just developed a new technique to sex a child skeleton just from a tooth. What? Uh, we've recently um, developed a new method to sex uh, humans, and we can. It's, this works from... Uh, before they're born up to um, any, any age, essentially. And it works because the protein that forms tooth enamel, so that's amelogenin, it's called, the protein's called amelogenin. So if the amelogenin is coded off the Y chromosome, it's different to the amelogenin that's coded off the X chromosome. So obviously females have two X chromosomes, so all their amelogenin is essentially the same. So they only, you only get one sort, really. Males have an X and a Y. So they, some of their amelogenin is coded off the X. Some of it's coded off the Y. And then what happens with that protein? Once the tooth enamels form, some of it gets trapped in the tooth enamel as the tooth enamel mineralizes and becomes hard. And the tooth enamel is the hardest tissue in your body. And it has virtually no organic in it at all. But it does have some of these proteins trapped in the tooth enamel 
And what we found was we could extract uh, the proteins from the tooth enamel and then measure them. Males have two types and females only have one. So we could measure that and show whether they had two types or one type. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a, big, a big breakthrough, really. What? <laughs> it's amazing. My jaw was on the floor. <laughs> wow. But it was just really, we never set out to do that. There was no sort of grant proposal written or money to do it or any of those things. We just sort of did it. Uh, a lady who was a, a biologist in Brazil, in, in Sao Paulo, and she kept emailing me saying, look, I want to come and work with you. I want to do some work on archaeological humans we've got we've got this method that we think works and I, I need to test how far back we can push it and we did the work and then a, a year or so later I got this this draft of the paper turned up on my desk and I was reading it and I'm thinking hang on a minute does this mean what I think it means are you telling me that determines the sex of the individual um yeah I think yeah yeah we can do that no 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 hang on and and <laughs> This is what, you know, she, she, she'd done it with Nick Stewart, who was a chemist in, in Brighton. So together he'd done the analysis. And, but they were archaeologists and oh. they were interested in it for, for whatever reason. But it never occurred to them that it would actually be useful to archaeologists. Uh, and I couldn't, I, 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 surely this can't be the case. If, somebody, if this could be done, somebody would already have done this. Yeah. You know, because cause I'm not a protein chemist and I know some really good proteomics people I thought surely they must have done this by now if this was possible they would have done it no and 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 Nick was saying oh so would it be useful to archaeologists to be able to do? Say, yes Nick it would be really useful and then I went around the department because I just still couldn't believe it I'm knocking on doors of people if I said to you I could sex a human by just looking at their teeth would that be of use and uh, you know because I just couldn't believe that it hadn't been done and I went to Eva who's our DNA person I said is this is this right you know can you and it turned out that no, nobody had done it yet. They knew that it would be, should be possible because they could extract the proteins from the tooth enamel. But nobody had found that bit in the whole human genome where those two proteins were different, where they were dimorphic. So the little bit of the sort of peptide chain in that protein where there was a difference in the X and the Y. And, and people had been looking for it, but what Nick did was find it. He found that bit of that peptide chain that was that where you should look because it's you know the human genome is a mass you know it's a massive database and you've got to find it and he found it. Wow. They published their work in 2016 and 2017. Wow. And I expect she will soon have people sending her teeth from all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> the rest of her life is just going to be teeth. Yeah, teeth are fabulous. I mean, teeth are fabulous things um, for archaeologists. Wow. They, we can get so much information from them. And that's because when they form, they sort of are incorporating information about your diet and your well-being, your physiology, where you're living. And they don't change because teeth don't regrow. You know, once you've lost your teeth yeah. or you've broken a tooth, it never grow back because wow. it's it's doesn't have any cells it's not like your bones your bones are living they're growing they're changing all the time if you break them they'll mend so they're changing all the time whereas the teeth don't so they're tiny little archives of information about your childhood essentially and we can get so much information from them now it's just amazing you know 20 30 years ago we would have never really predicted the amount of information we can get from them 
So. The other thing, enamel survives burial very well. Sometimes we only have teeth left. And so, we, for example, we have a Viking burial that's only got a couple of teeth left. We can sex the burial, even though we only have the tooth. So it allows us to determine the sex and decide whether it's a male or female if, if we only have teeth left. And also it allows us to, to sex uh, babies and, and children. Um, so, Even so unborn babies. Yeah, unborn babies. As long as they've got teeth, as long as they've got teeth, start you know starting to form, we can we can we can sex them. So it's very quick. It's and it's very difficult to contaminate it because all you can contaminate it with is your own tooth enamel, which is very hard. So that's not going to happen. Wow. So it it works brilliantly, and and so far we've you know with a hundred percent success rate. Wow, that's, I mean, <laughs> wow. It's amazing. So now we know the sex of two of the three <gasps> children. Ooh. We don't know the third one yet because she doesn't have a tooth from that child. Mm. But Martin Green is going to send her one. <laughs> and and somehow it brings them more to life. Um, so we, we tried it on a couple of these these children that were buried with a Cranbourne woman and we, we the five-year-old, the small child, the five-year-old was a little boy. And the nine to ten-year-old, the eldest child, she was a girl. These are things people want to know, you know, they want to know, they want to, you want, they want you to put the, the flesh on the bones really and, yes, and you know, exactly. and, and, you know, this is a, it's not just bones and skeletons, this is, this was a woman who was, you know, died, you know, quite young, I think she, I think she was in her sort of mid to late 20s and there were three small children with her and, you know, we don't know whether they were her children or not, um, but, you know, it's, I don't know. <laughs> it's quite sad, really. It's, you know, it's very sad, really, isn't it? But it's, but it's putting, it's bringing them back to life, really, and giving them a face. You know, it's a little boy, a little girl, and yeah. yeah. You know, and it's just a little piece of the jigsaw that you can add in. But you know, the more things like that we do, they just feel that you've given them back a bit of I don't know, personhood. I don't know, humanity. Yeah. Even in the Neolithic era, the age that's iconic for settling down, we have this evidence of traveling. Mm. And this isn't seasonal movement. This isn't like, you know, moving somewhere for the winter or, right. you know, moving somewhere for the harvest or something like that. This is years at a time. She's moving back and forth. A lot like you. <laughs> and and it makes me wonder, what are your Isotopes, like, what do the Mickle isotopes wow. look like? Because you, too, are a product of your environment. So I asked, can we map the origins of modern people, too? Like, what if you did an isotope analysis of Olivia Mickle? What would you get? Yeah, you can, you can certainly measure it in modern humans. Mm -hmm. The problem you have is that, essentially, these techniques rely on the, making the assumption that people source their food and drink where they were living. And if they don't do that, then the technique sort of falls apart. And if you think you can go to the supermarket, yeah. you can fill your trolley with foods from all over the world. Yeah. You don't, most people today don't source their food and drink locally. Wow. 
You know, you can have beef from Argentina, sugar snap peas from Zimbabwe, apples from New Zealand, wine from France. So it's sort of, it's much trickier really to use it in modern populations. It's kind of wild. In that way, we are in a brave new world. This is an unprecedented time period in human history. Hmm. But all of it, all this the global diet we have and this movement that we have, it's all a result of of our perhaps innate habit of exploring. Hmm. Maybe seeking the horizon is who we are. Hmm. Special thanks to Janet Montgomery at Durham University. If you want to learn more about Cranbourne Woman and Neolithic history, head to our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where we've collected for you all kinds of resources, from the BBC Meet the Ancestors book and documentary, to Martin Green's book about the 10,000-year history of his Dorset farm. We've got pictures of Janet Montgomery and Katie visiting her Durham lab, and some great artists' reproductions of Cranbourne Woman and the site shared with us by Jane Brain and Meredith Henderson. Martin Green has also shared with us pictures of the excavation of the site. And if you're ever in Dorset, stop by his farm where he curates the bones in a small museum on site. Music for this episode was recorded by Andy Reiner and Kate Fletcher and Corwin Brock at ancientmusic.co.uk and by Cindy Henderson. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. Find all this and more on our musicians section on our website. Our podcast is supported by listeners like you who became patrons on our website and helped make these stories happen. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Alexa. And have you always been curious if Winona Ryder is actually crazy? Are you dying to learn how to stay out of a cult? Then you should definitely check out the Psyched Podcast. The podcast where two psychotherapists analyze real and fictional figures from pop culture and tell you all about the obscure psychological phenomenon that your Psych 101 class didn't have time to tell you about. So grab your cocktail and head over to thepsychedpodcast.com and check us out. And don't forget to go to therapy. Bye. Bye. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatshernamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. Down.